please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you, each one of you, speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. This message is entitled, The New Way of Life in Christ. And the, the topic of this message is that Paul masterfully presents a dichotomy between the old man and the new man. And in the middle of these two, the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man, is the great vital necessity which is the renewing of the mind. And in that renewing, he says, it must be renewed in its spirit. And we will see today how there is an interplay between what is going on in our soul and what is going on in our mind. As Paul warns the Christians in Ephesus not to walk in the way that the Gentiles walk, and then he explains the reason for the Gentiles' walk. It is because their minds are darkened because of the hardness of heart. And so as those who are Christians, as those who have been made alive in Christ, it is our responsibility to walk out the gospel's implications and to put to death the old man 
and to take on the new man. And the way that we do that, smack dab in the middle, is through the renewing of our minds. It is not the case that this can be accomplished in any other way. It is not some mere external program. It is a supernatural work which the Holy Spirit causes to take place among his people. So I want to review just briefly the context of this reading. So we read today from Ephesians 4 and a little bit from Ephesians 5. I want to look briefly at the context of the letter to the Ephesians. Moreover, than any other epistle in the New Testament, the letter to the Ephesians does not contain a strong rebuke. Almost all epistles were occasional letters. They were letters written for a specific reason or occasion, which was to correct an error in the churches that were being addressed. If you remember our time in Galatians, Paul wrote to address the heresy of the requirement of circumcision to add on to the work of Jesus Christ to justify. If you remember the letter to the Corinthians, the reason for that letter was dozens of church-wide sins that were at place or at home with the Corinthians. Interestingly, Ephesus did not have a great heresy or a great uh, sin issue that Paul was addressing. Here in this letter, he is simply wanting to put forth the glories of God in his plan of redemption. Throughout these prior three chapters, Paul has over and over again unfolded aspects of the glorious plan of redemption for God that God has, has worked out in history. And we might make one inference from that. It is that those who are progressing in sanctification are ready for deeper truths in the Word of God. That is to say, unless you are willing to obey the Word of God, you are not ready for greater amounts of revelation and wisdom. The book of Hebrews provides this warning. It says that we ought to move on past milk. Milk is good when you need milk. But once you do not need milk any longer, it is time to start eating meat. That's, that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. And he says, let us press on. And then he says, I'm confident that we will because of the grace of God that's at work within you. And so the Ephesians, more than any other New Testament epistle, see a great cosmic picture of what God has been doing throughout the ages. Paul has expounded on the wisdom of God, put forth from eternity past, and begun to explain how God accomplished it. God had an amazing plan from eternity past, predestining and choosing all the elect to form into a new people that he would cause to come to life in his son. And now, because of the sending of the Messiah, that plan has become unfolded and presented to the Ephesians in time and in history. And the way that the Ephesians saw these things is through the clear preaching and teaching of God's word. In his rebuke to the Galatians, Paul says this very interesting phrase, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, you who before whom Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And we might ask, was Paul carrying around a copy of the Jesus DVD? or the passion of the Christ? No, the, the Galatians saw 
Jesus Christ in a spiritual sense through the preaching of God's word. Christ was portrayed through word pictures before the Galatians. And so likewise, the Ephesians, Paul is saying, you have become beholders of the great unfolded plan of redemption. That which God has purposed from ages ago has now been accomplished in the Messiah, and he has done something amazing in the Ephesians church. What he has done is not only accomplished salvation, but he has formed a new mankind. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains that God took the Gentiles and the Jews, who were two separate people groups, who were two separate nations, who were at enmity with each other, and through the death of Jesus Christ, he has made them a new whole, a new man in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say there's neither slave nor free, male, female, Jew, Greek, but one in the Lord. This is what Christ has done. He has become a new head. Just as Adam was the head of all mankind through whom sin was given to all, now Christ is the new head and therefore has brought about a new humanity on the earth. And Paul teaches that this new humanity, this new humankind or mankind is the church. It is not as if there's this rivalry between you know, Jews and Gentiles, which is the main story of the scriptures. The main story of the scriptures begins when God curses the serpent and says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. And that seed of the woman that God prophesied about in Genesis 3.15 was Jesus Christ. He was that offspring. And therefore, the great enmity is not Jew and Gentile. The great enmity is those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who are seeds of the serpent and those who are seeds of the woman, the true offspring of faith. So God has formed this new people as we see in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3. And then we pick up in Ephesians 4 and Paul says, To equip this new humanity, the church, God has given great gifts that at the ascension of Christ... Christ went to the right hand of the Father. He sat down on the throne of heaven and on earth. Having all authority, he receives the Holy Spirit, and then he pours forth that Spirit upon his people, the church. And in the pouring forth of that Spirit, he uniquely qualifies certain men for tasks within that people. Those, those people are not over the church, they are within the church. Interestingly, when Paul leaves the city of Ephesus, we see this recorded in Acts 20, he says to the Ephesian elders to watch over themselves and the flock of God in which he has made them overseers. Not over which he has made them overseers. So this new humanity in which there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, man nor woman, now these, this new humanity some of those people within that group are designated for certain tasks. Paul calls these people apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Those who wrote the word of God and those who are given charge to oversee the church. And the reason for those people is not so that they would be superstars. It is not so that those 
fivefold ministry members would be the ones who do the ministry. Rather, he goes on to say, he gave those five, the apostles, evangelists, shepherds, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, he gave those five to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Probably one of the most important verses in the New Testament which defines our aspirations as a church is that verse. We see our leaders in our church as merely equipping saints, and the saints are the ones tasked with the work of the ministry. Now, of course, those five-fold ministry members also do the work of the ministry. But the purpose is this, that as Christ is a new head over a new humanity, Paul says that new humanity, the church, must grow up into maturity. It's, it's kind of like if you've ever seen uh, a weed or maybe morning glories or trumpet vines, they begin to crawl up this structure and the lattice work or the, the pillars that they're climbing are the context or the backing for this morning glory, this trumpet vine reaching up towards the sun, looking for more light and more height, and it is taking ground and it's growing up. That is Paul's vision of this new humanity, this new man in Christ. It is that as God's people, the church worldwide, which he has purchased with his blood, we all individually members of it are supposed to grow up into maturity. The picture is this, there is a seed in the ground and it is sprouted and there is new life. Nevertheless, that new life is not complete. There is no fruit yet and there is no substance to uh, this this new tender shoot it is a fledg it's it's a fledgling work it's a tiny work that must be cultivated and stewarded and shaded at the appropriate time and given sun and water at the appropriate time given nutrients at the appropriate time and we are to grow up into maturity into Christ and it is this purpose that He has given the church. That is the purpose that through their growing up into maturity, they would display the mercies of God, not only in the call of the gospel, but in the walking out of the gospel. So that is the context for Paul's preaching and commanding of the Ephesian church to now do these things. It is important that we know this context because Paul is writing to those who are Christians. Paul is not writing to those who are considering the gospel for the first time. He is giving commands to those who he assumes are new creations in Christ and have the power of the Holy Spirit with which to obey. So as we hear Paul's words today, we have to understand this context. He's telling them how to live within the church, not merely as individuals. He's not speaking to isolated people He's speaking to the community of the redeemed, the bride of Christ. Because of God's great salvation, everything that Paul has gone three or four chapters now into explaining the great eternity, the calling from eternity past, the predestination which he has accomplished now through his son Jesus, the sending of the Holy Spirit to equip the saints to have power to defeat sin and to walk in new life. Because of that great gospel, Paul then begins to give specific, clear, applied commands to the Ephesians. These commands are summarized as putting off the old self, allowing one's mind to be renewed, 
and putting on the new self. It's an amazing picture, but you can kind of imagine as if you would see a reptile who is wrangling himself out of his shell or his former skin. He's molting away this outer skin that must die and fall off. And then he is a new reptile in a sense. Now the picture doesn't quite work because reptiles are repulsive. The point is they are supposed to they are supposed to leave that behind it is no longer sufficient for them paul is saying that there is a great exchange made at the cross and then a great exchange that is made in sanctification it is not although christ's work is a completed work purchasing everything necessary for the believer that work which is accomplished must be applied And that is applied through the Holy Spirit, and it necessarily involves our submission and obedience. That is what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, you must not continue to walk like that. So that is really the context of these verses. I want to look at four grand ideas in this passage. First is I want to look at the doctrine of man apart from Jesus Christ. Paul says, you must not walk as the Gentiles do, and then he goes on to explain what he means by that. When he's using the word Gentiles, keep in mind, he is saying that the true Jews are in the church. It is not as today we use the word Jews to talk about those who follow a different form of Judaism than existed in the first century. Judaism has gone through many changes since then. It's not the way you and I would use the phrase Jews today. He is saying that the true Jews, the ones who are really worshiping Yahweh, are those who've recognized the Messiah. And therefore, in the New Testament, Paul says, we are the circumcision. We are the true Jews. The true Jew is the one who is a Jew inwardly, not externally. And so Paul saying, here are these Gentiles. You must not walk like them. We can make an amazing number of applications from what he says is the state of all those who are outside of Jesus Christ. Then I want to look at this description of a new way of life in Christ. And what's so beautiful and so wonderful is, as a wonderful you know, former rabbi, Paul is expounding the Old Testament commandments in the context of the new life in Jesus Christ. I want to look at what it means to be sanctified within the context of community. As we're going to see, none of these commands even make any sense in a solo sense or a solo picture of individualistic walking out of one's faith. All of them have to do with relating to other people. And then finally, I want to look at this summarizing all of it as an imitation of the divine. That is to say, as children who've been adopted by our Father God, we are merely trying to be like him. That is what Paul is commanding us to be. Paul warns them that they must not presume that continuing to walk in their former sins is permissible. One of the the most important uh, spiritual fathers in my life once described sin as treason against the king who you love. That, That definition of sin has been very powerful in helping me to 
combat sin. And Paul is saying, you've transferred kingdoms. You must not presume to walk as you once did. Ephesians 4, 17, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Look at the connections in verse 18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, Paul has just mentioned two things. They are darkened in what they understand. They are ignorant in their minds. And why, is, why are they ignorant? He goes on to say, due to their hardness of heart. For many of us, we make a false dichotomy between head knowledge and heart knowledge. We assume that learning things about the scriptures with our minds, learning facts about the scriptures or, or simply reading the Bible in an external form will produce a transformation of heart. But Paul says the opposite. The reason the Gentiles are ignorant in their mind concerning the law of God is because they are darkened in their heart. Their heart is hard toward God. He goes on to say, They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. This truly is the state of every person outside of Jesus Christ. Christianity is an amazing claim. Unlike other religions, some of which maintain that other religions are appropriate, or permissible. Christianity teaches it should be no shame to you to learn, if you call yourself a Christian, that all outside of Christ are ignorant in their understanding, that they do not know God because they are hard in their hearts, that when we interact with our neighbors in the world who either are simply humanists or Muslims or Hindus or Mormons, or Jehovah's Witness, we, we do not maintain that it is just a different choice, that it's a matter of personal preference. Christianity teaches that those who have not seen Christ as the eternal Son of God and have come to faith in Him, that all those who are outside of Jesus Christ do not know God, and they cannot see Him. In fact, It is such a bold claim that I would venture to say no other faith makes that strong of a claim. Other religions permit other religions. Christianity is totally exclusive. And the reason it is totally exclusive is because God says so. The Word of God says so. These are not the opinions of Christians in the 21st century. This is the plain teaching of God. And it is important for us to know this for a few reasons. First, this should be a great, great amplifier of our zeal in evangelism. This should cause us to have compassion on those who do not know Jesus Christ. Why? Because we see the inevitability of the trap. They cannot know God because they are hard against God. And therefore, they require the working miracles through the Holy Spirit of conversion and new life. And it is only through preaching the word that that will take place. Being cut off from the life of God, these people are now alienated from life. It is, it is like cutting off a weed. 
The weed is still green the rest of the day. Come back tomorrow, it will be shriveled and it will have have withered. The greenness is gone. Paul says that they are alienated. They're cut off from the life in God and therefore they are dead in their spirits. These people, those who are outside of Jesus Christ, cannot know God, not because they're unable to understand. It isn't that they do not have the mental capacity but rather because their hearts refuse to acknowledge the truth and to receive the truth. It is not a matter of human knowledge or informational transfer. It is not a difficulty of speaking different words, but rather there is a spiritual substance which those words come with, and it is that which these oppose. So the point that he is making, and one that I think we must not miss is this in verse 19 they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality greedy to practice every kind of impurity why are they greedy to practice every kind of impurity it is because being cut off from the author of life and having nothing but deadness in them they are searching all things to be a source of joy and a source of life to them That because they have been severed from God, they are now looking for anything that will satisfy. Jeremiah said that the word of, through Jeremiah, the word of God came against Israel. My people have committed two great sins. They have rejected me, the author of life, and they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns which cannot satisfy. A cistern is a well. It's a place where you go to find water. And that sin of God's people come through Jeremiah, announced through Jeremiah, is that they rejected God and they started looking for life in other places. That's what Paul is saying is taking place here. They've alienated themselves from God and therefore they're looking for anything that might satisfy their soul's longing, but it cannot. So, with that context, understanding that that is the way of life for the Gentiles, that is their walk, Their mission in life is to find joy in something which would satisfy, but everything they're looking for is, as Paul says, greedy and impure and sensuality. Therefore, we who are in Christ, who are not cut off from life, must not walk in that way. We must not be like that because we have been given new life in Jesus Christ. And it's not as if God has just simply dropped some sort of amount of new life in Jesus Christ. We have been connected to the author of life. Verse 20, that is not the way you learn Christ. I I love the next few verses. This is a very hard thing to translate into English, and it's even harder to, to phrase the right way. But everything that follows for the next few verses is actually a dependent clause. It's it's kind of a part of the sentence that is kind of hanging on an assumption. He says, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. What were they supposed to have been taught? To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Why does Paul call them deceitful desires? Because they promise something that they can't fulfill. I think he uses that phrase intentionally to talk about the reason the Gentiles are looking for all forms of impurity. They're looking 
for sensuous pleasures is because they are deceitful desires. Lust, greed, avarice, sloth, laziness of spirit, backbiting, slander, all of these things are temptations of the enemy that are subtly saying to you, if you do this, it'll be enjoyable. This will be easier than working. This will be easier than telling the truth. All of these things he calls deceitful desires. Going on in 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Though Christianity, the Christian walk, clearly does begin with hearing and receiving a pure, free offer of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, it does not end there. The Christian gospel does not end with forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. It actually begins with that. That is merely the starting place. The announcement of the possibility of forgiveness through the blood of Jesus is the stepping stone into the Christian life. That is not the sum and substance of the Christian life. The substance of the Christian life is walking in that which he has paid for. Paul says that this full gospel includes walking out sanctification. Just look again at these verses. You did not learn Christ this way. And then he goes on saying, I'm assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him. So there was an announcement of who Jesus Christ was, and then you began to be taught, not outside of him, but you were taught in him. That there was a teaching given to you by those who preached the gospel to you, Ephesians, and you have heard of Jesus Christ, and you were told at the beginning that you must not walk like that, but you must walk in newness of life. Paul says that the full gospel necessarily includes putting off the old self, being renewed in one's mind, and putting on the new self. It is not an optional extra for those who wish to go deeper in their Christian walk. It is the Christian walk. Sanctification is the gospel. That is to say, the gospel necessarily includes sanctification, and those who do not continue in that way have not received the gospel. Though we are new creations in Christ, though the old has passed away, behold, the new has come, though that is true, we nevertheless necessarily need to put off the old self. We have to take from Paul's commands to put off the old self the assumption behind that command. The assumption behind the command that you must put off the old self is that there is still an old self. You cannot put off that which is non-existent. You have an old self, Christian, which is constantly trying to rise up and kill you and to convince you that it is worthy of still being alive. You must put it off. You must throw it away. You must discard it. You have a mind that needs renewing. It may be a surprise to some of you, but you currently think wrong thoughts about God. And you currently do not evaluate the things of Christ and the things of the promises of the gospel in a right way. I was listening to a sermon last night that was talking about those who are given to sin. And the preacher made a very interesting claim 
that should someone be there and offer you $1 million to not do that thing, that everyone in his audience, and I would venture everyone in this audience, could withhold from doing that thing for the time being to receive that reward. His argument was that no one lacks self-control, but rather they are bound by, they are driven by what they believe to happen. They are driven by what they believe to happen when they engage in that sin versus what they believe to receive as a reward for not engaging in that sin. And so the Christian must not only respond to the new reality of the new self, but must be constantly aware that they have an old self which must be warred against, and they have a mind which must be renewed. And therefore, as John Gray wonderfully put in the Sunday school hour, they joyfully submit themselves to the word of God to hear under it. It is like water which comes down from heaven and waters the earth. It does not return back to God without accomplishing the purpose for which it's sent. The final thing that there must be an implication of is that the new self, although it is here, it must be put on. It is not enough to simply say, I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Your attitudes, deeds, behaviors, emotions, desires, loves, joys must begin to walk in step with that claim. Your affections must transform due to the gospel. And it is only through the transformation of one's affections based on hearing the precious promises and the extremely real warnings of Scripture that one's affections and behavior will change. Putting off the the old self is not an automatic thing. Putting off the old self takes war. Have you ever played paintball or laser tag? Maybe airsoft? I believe paintball is one of the most wonderfully helpful analogies I've ever experienced in my life. Why? Because paintballs hurt. It is the only thing short of going to war which might be able to convince oneself of the necessity to be on guard. In war, there is constant attention. The war-trained, war-context mind is looking everywhere, everywhere for signs of the enemy. Every twig that snaps, every leaf that crunches could be the enemy approaching. The war-trained mind is sharp. It is not convinced of the possibility of lesser pleasures or distractions. No one is checking their Instagram feed in war. The point is, the old self is a real enemy that is constantly wanting to come back and attack you. Paul describes the lust of the flesh as passions which wage war on your soul. So we must understand, not only is the old self real, not only does it exist, but it needs to be opposed. And opposed is too weak of a word. It needs to be put to death. And indeed, Paul tells us that in other places. The old self must be diametrically opposed. Opposed as a pure evil, that which is wanting to destroy us. We must, therefore, forsake our old ways and our old habits. Sin is not something we just do. Sins work their way into our ways of life. 
That's what Paul's saying. You must not walk in your old way of life. You must not presume that all of your habits that you've brought into your new Christian walk are valid. Some of them have to die. Unless our minds are renewed by God's word, which is applied by his spirit, we will remain in ignorance. There are wonderful, precious promises in this word of God, which I have never fully appreciated, and neither have you. And I am ignorant in certain things which God is wanting me to be renewed in, and so are you. This is what Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians to do. Let your mind be renewed so that when you go into the next battle, how you judge the scales is the way that God judges the scales. Unless you are going into your battles of temptation armed with the truths of God's word with a fully renewed mind, you cannot escape that temptation. I want to read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, this is a book which may be in our bookstore. It used to be a book that we had here at the church. I'm not sure if it still is. But I want, I want to explain this before I read it, that I believe Dietrich Bonhoeffer is merely representing what Paul is saying in these words. That, that Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote here, as I'm about to read in just a second, is actually merely an application. As we said, sanctification is included in the gospel. He says, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of the world, of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. So just as the Gentiles are alienated from the life of God, so for the Christian, that Christian now, his old self is alienated. It's cut off. Bonhoeffer continues, as we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give our lives over to death. And for all those who've been baptized, that is what your baptism means, that you are uniting yourself in a death like his. Thus it begins, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. It's very interesting for our Lord, the cross was the end of his life before his resurrection. And for the believer, that is where our lives begin, Bonhoeffer says. And here the famous portion of this quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That is what the cross of Christ is. The cross of Christ is not just a thing that you add on top of an otherwise good life. It is the beginning of your new Christian walk, which says, all that which is within you, which is dead and sin, must die. I am reminded of a, a phrase that the early Christians had, which is, um, I'm probably going to butcher the Latin, dear, if you could help me, memento morti, is that it? Or mori. Memento mori was a Latin phrase of the first few century church, which they used to, used to say to each other frequently, and it was this, remember that you must die. What an interesting idea. All of us, to, to channel um, Siegfried or was Sigmund, Siggy, from, from What About Bob? My favorite part of that movie is actually what Sigmund says. He says, everyone is going to die. And what's so beautiful is this 
small little boy, 9, 10, 12 years old, is he is prevented from enjoying life because he realizes that all people are going to die. Remember, Christian, you are going to die, not just at the end of your life. You have to die. Your old self, that which you still cling to, must be crucified. Paul told the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but the life which I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That is what the Christian walk is to be. So, desiring to show more clearly the implications, Paul does not rely on the Ephesians working out what he said, but he begins to apply very specific commands to this new community. And what I want to show is that all of these commands, everything he says from 25 forward, could never be done in an individualistic sense. They all relate or they all concern how we relate to one another. Each of these commands is therefore meaningless without understanding them in the context of Christian fellowship. Verse 25, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you, each one of you, speak the truth with his neighbor. Now imagine adopting a mindset which says, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to know other Christians. I can merely receive everything I need through the internet, through Christian sermons. How can you speak the truth with your neighbor in your dorm room listening to the Gospel Coalition sermons? You can't. You can't speak the truth with your neighbor unless you understand you were made to live with your neighbors in the church. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Who are you going to be angry with? Do not let the sun go down upon your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I, I cannot tell you the number of times I have disobeyed this verse and had a nightmare that night. There is something about these promises and warnings which are so real that the Lord is very often gracious to allow our disobedience to, to be felt quickly so that we wouldn't persist in it. Do not give the devil an opportunity means do not harbor maleficent thoughts against your neighbor. Don't, don't wish evil on your, your neighbor. That allows the enemy into your life. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Again, this makes no sense. Even just in the labor portion, if you work, you have to sell your, your goods to someone. Or if you work, you receive a wage from someone else. Likewise, when you have something, you're giving it to those who are in need. All of these, it is clear, presuppose a Christian context, a context of church life with other people who you know and who know you. Interestingly, in fleshing out these commands, I find it not surprising in the least that Paul is merely applying the Ten Commandments to the Christian context. For those in the church, they not only must refuse to bear false witness, but they must speak the truth with their neighbor. See, the, the Ten Commandments were given and it says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Paul says, let's take it a step further. You, also, you don't only have to not speak lies, but you have to speak the truth. You have to be reconciled with your brother. You can't just not say the hurtful comment. You must say, you know, I've got, a, I've got an issue. We need, to, we need to work it out. 
We need to talk about this. Going on, we must not, not, we must not only not murder, but we must not also sin in our anger. Jesus, in fact, explains this explicitly in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you, the ancients said, do not be do, you should not murder, or thou shalt not murder, but I say to you, whoever is angry in his heart with his brother has already murdered. Do you see how Paul is using Christ's words in the Old Testament to, to apply this to the Christians? This was what the great promise of the new covenant was, right? I'll put a new spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and in my ways. So Paul, therefore, is explicitly applying the Ten Commandments. Not only are we to refuse to steal, but we have to be generous. The law said, thou shalt not steal, and grace applied does not discard the law, but applies the law and says, not only do we not steal, but we ought to work hard so that we could be generous. The opposite of the transgression. Finally, Paul highlights those sins which happen so easily and so quickly, those sins which are caused by your words. Perhaps no sin has been grievous to me as much in the last few years as saying things that I ought not to say. The reason being is because of what James says, that unless you have control over your tongue, you are not yet perfect. This is our goal as Christians. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. Remember what he said earlier in Ephesians 4, until we all attain maturity, until we grow up into the head. He says, therefore, your words are to that goal, but only as such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Summarizing his instructions, he begins what in our Bibles is the next chapter, but probably in the way that he was writing, he's merely summarizing what he said. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. He tells us that our lives are to be a fragrant offering, a persistent and consistent offering up of ourselves in service to other as a daughter wishes to be like her mother or a son like her father, so also we who've been adopted in Christ ought to be like our father. That should be our desire. One of my greatest joys in life is my two-year-old daughter who will come into my study as I'm sitting at my computer and says to me, Daddy, I want to work with you. It's the most precious thing. And what I do, I open this little app on my computer where she can just bang on the keys. And it's kind of what I do, but it's, it's, it's not at all like what I do. That should be the Christian walk. We should want to, as children of God, we should want to kill everything within our old manner of life that doesn't look like our father. And it's a little bit of a mixing of a metaphor, this wartime mentality while also wanting to be like a child the sort of innocence that should accompany the Christian's heart in walking out love is, is our goal. It's our aim. 
So, since we have been adopted into God's family, let us treat our brothers and our sisters with charity, loving both in deed and in truth. I think it's interesting how Paul says, let all slander be put far away from you, right? Do not grumble. Do not complain. That's one of the rules in our house. No fussing. That's one of our, that's one of our few rules that we have and maintain. It's, it's this, that our words towards our brothers and sisters must be gracious and our deeds as well. So, as those who have come to life in Jesus Christ, let us forsake our old manner of life and walk in the newness which he has purchased for us with his blood. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, at the entry of your word, you bring life and understanding to all. And so, Father, we, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you would cause us this week to walk in newness of life, to make war on the old man, to put him to death and to refuse to give him any quarter or ceasefire. But Lord, that in your precious promises that we would find joy and delight. Lord, I ask that you would cause a great sobriety to come upon us as we consider how we ought to walk as those who have come to Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that whatever parts of us are still remaining that are dead and not, not made new, that you would help us to recognize them, that your spirit would come and bring conviction and also not only conviction, but deep zeal and joy in walking out our new calling. We thank you so much for the new birth and the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.